You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. Why don't you go ahead and tell someone the title of my sermon this morning, The Good Shepherd of the Sheep. Amen. Well, just before we get into this morning's sermon, just again, a reminder that after service at 2 p.m., we are going to have our men's ministry uh, event at Brother Jeeves' house. I hope you guys are ready for that. I know we're going to be planning to wrestle some boars and uh, wood chop and do a lot of manly things. Man, we're the, we're the guys in this church, man. Like, can I hear a grunt at least from the guys? Like, oh my goodness. And then next week, of course, it's the women's ministry at uh, Sister Sharon's house and I'm sure you guys are going to be doing some lady stuff, like, I don't know, listen to Celine Dion, whatever it is that you ladies do. Um, but, we, but we are back in our Gospel of John series. Uh, we're picking up in chapter 10 of John's Gospel, and as I mentioned, we'll be doing this until December, where we're, we're, we'll start looking at some more Christmas um, theme sermons as well. But if you recall to mind... The purpose of our Gospel of John series is to remember the sufficiency of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and to also recall to mind his, the supremacy of the Gospel, um, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, and ultimately secure in us, believers, a hope in our Savior. Oftentimes when we go through experiences or struggles in life, and trials, and, and the circumstances, circumstances around us get difficult, especially with the things that are happening in the world, it's very important for us to remember where our hope is, where our hope lies. And for us believers, it's in our Savior, Jesus Christ. The Gospel of John provides this comfort because John's purpose in writing this book, in writing his Gospel, is John chapter 20, verse 31. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He's, talking, he, he's writing explicitly to prove that Jesus is the Savior from the Old Testament, the Messiah, the prophesied Christ from the Old Testament. He also writes with the intent of proving that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God, proving that Jesus is divine, that he is just as powerful with the same authority, with the same nature as God himself. And, of course, he writes with evangelistic intent. He wants his readers to believe in Jesus so that they might have life and have it abundantly. John writes with the purpose of, of trying to convert his readers and, and, and prove, again, sway his readers to believing that Jesus is, in fact, sufficient for our salvation. Now, if, if we were to look at the Gospel of John and try to pinpoint areas or scenes or even um, locations in this, in this Gospel where he, he explicitly depicts his thesis, I, I believe it would be in the I Am Statements of Christ. There are seven great I Am Statements of Christ scattered throughout the Gospel of John that explicitly declare Jesus from Jesus' own lips that he is, in fact, the Messiah, the Son of God, and, and the benefits of putting our faith in Him and following Him. And also, the, these seven I Am statements, again, also serve to, to prove His divinity and also connects Him with the Old Testament prophecies. We've looked at these I Am statements already, some of them at least, as we've been studying this book. First, we looked at the, the uh, Jesus' statement of, I am the bread of life in John chapter 6. 
That took place during the Passover. And if you recall uh, that scene, he's, he's, he even specifically brings up the idea of manna falling from heaven during the time of the Israelites in the wilderness. Then we looked at uh, the second I am statement, I am the light of the world in John chapter 8. This was during the Feast of Booths, a, a feast of the Jews, where a part of that celebration is that they would have a procession of priests, temple priests, carrying around torches to sort of emulate the, 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 the pillar of fire that the Jews followed in the wilderness back in Exodus. And, of course, Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world. I am the light that you ought to be following. Then last week, we looked at Jesus' third statement, I am the door. John chapter 10, verse 7, and if we look into the context of it, actually we read, we'll probably look at this next week, but in verse 22, this whole discourse in John chapter 10 is happening during the Feast of Dedication of the Jews. In the Feast of Dedication of the Jews, if you don't know what it is, modern day Jews would call it Hanukkah. We see that it's all actually, this whole thing is taking place in winter, and that the Hanukkah or the or the feast of uh, the feast of uh, dedication or the festival of lights to the Jews commemorates the Maccabean revolt that took place in 164 BC, where a man named Judas Maccabee led a revolt against the Greek Empire, the Seleucid Empire. Um, he was known as sort of a more of a political messiah to the Jewish. People, uh, and many, many people believe that he was, in fact, the Messiah during the day. This is when the whole miracle of the menorah took place, and that's what Jews today even celebrate during Hanukkah. Why is this important to the context of our passage? Well, because in, at the beginning of chapter 10, if you have your Bibles, just look up the, the very first part of chapter 10 there. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. Then in verse 8, he says, all who came before me are thieves and robbers. Remember from last week, the thieves and robbers that Jesus refers to are the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the, the political leaders who had abused the people of God, the, the people of Israel, the false shepherds that were taking advantage of the Jewish people. If you recall in Ezekiel chapter 34, God's condemnation to these religious leaders. He says, Ezekiel 34, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourself with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So picture the, the scene here when Jesus is talking to this crowd of people. It's wintertime. It's Hanukkah. It's the festival of lights for the Jews. There's festivities happening and then again, it's commemorating that great revolt of that false political messiah, Judas Maccabee. And then here comes, and of course in chapter 9, we also get the context of how we, we, we see the, the man who was born blind being the first guy who got kicked out of the Jewish synagogue. And then Jesus comes out and says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. 
Jesus is explicitly declaring that all other religious leaders, political leaders that came before him are just thieves and robbers looking to kill and destroy the sheep. But he is the door of life where only through him can we experience a life of abundance, of provision, the provision of salvation, of protection. And and that is a, a, a life of joy regardless of what's going on in our life, regardless of what's going on in the world, those who follow Christ, those who go through the door, can experience an abundant life, full of hope and joy and peace, only through the door of Jesus Christ. Now, that was last week, and now we come to the fourth I am statement of Jesus. He says, and he sort of sticks around with this idea of shepherds and sheep. He says in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. Keep in mind the context of this passage and everything that we just mentioned about Hanukkah, everything that happened in chapter 9. Again, Jesus is comparing comparing the Jewish leaders with thieves and robbers. Jesus is saying, all who came before me are the evil, bad shepherds, but I am the good shepherd. The original Greek word there for good is kalos. It means that which is beautiful and honorable, worthy of praise, just as we sang a few moments ago, that which inspires and draws people in. Jesus is saying, I am the good shepherd. He's inviting his listeners to come in and and see that he is the good shepherd, the shepherd who is unlike the unworthy, the detestable, the evil shepherds who have come before him. Jesus is saying he is the good shepherd. And this morning, what we want to do in our sermon and our time together is to unpack our passage and see why Jesus is considered good. What makes Jesus so good? What makes Jesus the good shepherd? What differentiates him from the shepherds, the leaders, the the religious leaders, faith leaders who came before him? And why at the end of the day, Jesus is our only hope in this world full of wolves, in this world full of thieves who seek to destroy kill and steal the sheep. Our hope for this morning is is that we would be reminded why Jesus is most desirable, why he is so good, why we can turn to him, depend on him, regardless of what is going on in our life and in the world, that we would be encouraged to do so in our trials. Ultimately, our hope from the sermon this morning is to see the supremacy of Christ, the sufficiency of our Savior, and come to know him more, come to love him more. So let's unpack our passage. Let's jump in as we always do. Everyone say jump for me. All right, let's go to verse 11 of our our passage here. It says, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Straight away, Jesus is already getting into it. He's explaining why he is the good shepherd. Here's here's, Here's the reason why, the first reason we see, because he dies for the sheep. Because he dies for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This is, of course, in comparison and in contrast to the bad hired, uh, the hired hand, the, the fake shepherds, the evil shepherds that came before him. Look at verse 12 of our passage. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolves coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters He's contrasting himself to these evil shepherds who would rather run away and let the sheep die in his place. For and now, no doubt, this is of course foreshadowing or the Christ's substitutionary death on the cross. 
This is looking towards the future. It's uh, him taking the place of the sheep where, where the sheep was meant to die, to be devoured by the wolves. The good shepherd, Jesus Christ, takes their place instead. That's the substitutionary, the substitution uh, that, that Jesus uh, does at the cross. Now, this imagery of the shepherd laying down his life also is a callback to the Old Testament, to David, in fact. When you study the life of David, you come to realize that he's, he's a type of Christ, a sort of foreshadow of Christ, of the Messiah who was coming. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, when that, that great story of David and, the, and Goliath, when David steps up to fight Goliath, he goes to King Saul, and when King Saul questions him, how can he fight Goliath, this giant, this monster of a man? David says, when I was watching my father's sheep and lions came and bears came, I stuck around and fought. I fought them. That's the imagery that is, Christ is trying to invoke here with the shepherd that is laying down his life. The imagery of David who, who stuck around and protected the sheep when he could have just ran. He's drawing comparisons to him. Again, he, Jesus is drawing comparisons to himself and these evil leaders or these, these bad shepherds who have come before him. And really, even after him, who come after him. You know, the story of the world is that Again, I mean, we talked about this a little bit last week. Aside from Christianity and the gospel, the other world religions say that, hey, it's all the same, right? We, we all just, we're all just climbing a mountain up to God, to where God is, and as long as we do good, we'll make it up that mountain. That's the story of all world religions. Do enough good, outweigh your bad stuff, and you'll get to the top. And of course, we talked about that last week, where that's not the case for Scripture. That's not what the Bible says. Similarly, most religions have a common theme as well, in that no world religion or founder of world religion or faith leaders have ever died for the sheep apart from Jesus. It's always the mentality is always the sheep have to die for the faith, martyrdom. Do this great act of sacrificing your life and maybe you'll get 72 virgins in the afterlife. Again, the, the, the common thread throughout all these other world religions is that the, the leaders have the followers die for them or even for the cause or for the faith. Except Jesus Christ. Except Jesus Christ. Muhammad, Buddha, the Gurus of Sikhism, Joseph Smith of Mormonism, Mary of Catholicism, Moses of Judaism, none of them died for their followers. None of them. Only Jesus was willing and did die for the sheep. And in case someone was like, well, you know what, I, I found this cult here, uh, the cult of, of Mark and, and, and the, the guitar players, and, and Mark died for his followers. Well, it's not just about dying, as we read from our passage. What Jesus did for the sheep goes beyond that, in fact. It says in our passage, look at verse 17, For this reason the Father loves me, because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. This is why... This is why... Jesus is good. Because at the end of the way, and why he's not just good, but the ultimate good. 
Because at the end of the, at the, day, at the, end of the day, he, he not only lays his life down for the sheep, but he also takes it up again. No other world religion, no other religious leader can claim that. Christ's death and resurrection demonstrates his commitment to the sheep. We, we talk a lot about Jesus' death on the cross, again, the substitutionary atonement, and the payment for our sins so that we can be forgiven. But his resurrection is greatly more important. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, look at this. He says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also give, how, how will we... How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is condemned? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Jesus did not stay dead. By his authority, he took his life back up so he can sit at the right hand of the Father. Understand how crucial, how important that is. That more than, again, Paul says, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who, who indeed is interceding for us. The word there in the original Greek for interceding is entuntano. To supplicate, to plead, to pray for someone on their behalf. Meaning, Jesus rose from the grave. Not only, he didn't just die, he rose from the grave so that he can sit at the right hand of the Father in order to plead for us. So that whenever we fall short, whenever sin arises in our life, and, that, and God should look at us with, with, with wrath, Jesus is there saying, but Father, I have died for him. My blood has washed them clean. Whenever the guilt of our past and present causes us to shrink back and, and not approach the, the holy throne of God, Jesus is there saying, let them in. My righteousness has been credited to them. Whenever the world tries to sway and deceive us and pull us away from God, Jesus is there at the right hand of the Father saying, Father, they are mine. They are my sheep. I will not let anyone take them away. No other world religion or founder of some pagan faith has ever claimed this, can ever claim this, this glorious promise. Only Jesus, the good shepherd who has died and rose for his sheep, Just maybe a side note here, just before we move on. It says in verse 18, no one takes it from, Jesus says, no one takes it from me, talking about his life, but I laid down of my own accord. Sometimes there's this notion in the narrative of the gospel, in God sending the Son, that the Son was maybe indifferent or reluctant or innocent or an innocent bystander in that narrative. It's like the father loved us so much so he, he sacrificed his son, this innocent you know, baby boy that, that, that did nothing wrong. But that's infinitely far from what the scripture says. In Jesus' own words, he willingly lays down his life on his accord for the sheep. Meaning the son was thoroughly involved in God's sovereign plan to die for the sheep, for the believers, for you and me. Jesus not only needed to die for us, but he wanted to die for us, for you and me. 
Later in John, Jesus will say to his disciples, greater love has no man than this, that a man should lay down his life for his friends. Then he says to his disciples, you are my friends. Jesus is the good shepherd because he willingly dies for the sheep. He wants to die for the sheep. And he did. And he, and, and he does this for good purpose. Look at our, our passage again. Look at verse 13. He says, He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Talking about the evil shepherds. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Here's the second reason why Jesus is the good shepherd. Because he knows the sheep. He knows the sheep. Again, verse 14, I know my own and my own know me. You saw how this relationship looks like in that video at the start of our sermon. How the sheep completely ignored all the tourists and only responded when the shepherd called to them. And I think we sort of understand how that works, right? The, the sheep know that they're going to be fed by that man who's calling them. They know who has the food. They know who to go to. And so I think we sort of understand, at least from a basic level, that sheep are responding maybe from a, just out of habit. But nonetheless, the, the premise is still there, at least on the shepherd's side of things. He is more intimately involved. He is more aware of who his sheep are. The idea of knowing in our passage here, what Jesus talks about in verse 14, is that of, a, of personally or intimately knowing someone. Oftentimes you hear, in maybe in Christian circles, you know, the idea of knowing your spouse biblically, right? Don't want to get too much into that. Husbands and wives, you know what that means? Knowing your spouse, as the Bible says, But that idea of knowing is often referred or often used as an illustration of the, the kind of knowing that God has for us. Of course, knowing refers to the physical intimacy between husband and wife that, that is a manifestation of their love and, and how, how they become one with each other. It's the same word that's actually being used in our passage when Jesus says, I know my sheep and they know me. It's that same level of physical intimacy. It's, it's, they're using, rather, Scripture uses that, that imagery of the oneness of husband and wife to describe God's knowing of us and God's love for us. Understand, God's knowing or God's love of us goes beyond physical it goes beyond a physical sense. It's spiritual, it's emotional, it's mental, it's more than just what husbands and wives show to each other. That's just the, how, we, how we can plainly understand it. God knows us better than we know ourselves. David tries his best to encapsulate this knowing of God. He says in Psalm 139, verse 1 to 4, he says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Jesus is the good shepherd because he knows us. 
He loves us. He is intimately aware of all our longings, all our tendencies, all our habits, our struggles, our circumstances, our wants, our needs, which makes him suitable to meet and address our needs. In the book of Hebrews, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus knows us. And of course, contrast that to the false shepherds that Jesus refers to in our passage who do not care. Verse 13 says, He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. The hired hand, the false teacher, the false leader, the false shepherd does not care for the sheep because suddenly they don't know the sheep. Like, why would I care? They don't love the sheep. Listen, church, Jesus knows you. Jesus loves you. Sometimes we say it all the time or we sing about it all the time and hear it all the time at church. And I think that often loses its weight. Jesus knows you, brother. Jesus loves you, sister. You have to understand it's not just who you are today or in the past or present, in your present circumstances or even who you can be. Look at our passage. Jesus describes the extent of this knowing, of this love that he has for the sheep. Verse 15, he says, Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. That's the description here. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. That's, that's, that's the description or the extent in which God or Christ knows the sheep. Which means... If we're to take Jesus literally, plainly at his word, in every way that the Father knows the Son, Jesus also knows the sheep, us, you and me. Here's a question, right? How much does the Father know the Son? Completely, perfectly. The two, son, the, the two, two persons of the, the Trinity, we get that, we understand that they, they know each other completely and perfectly. But beyond that, how long has the Father known the Son? How long has the Father known the Son? Since forever, since eternity past. You can even say, because God is eternal and never changes, the Father has always known the Son. There was never a point ever in eternity past where the Father did not know the Son. So what does that mean about Jesus and his sheep? About us, believers, followers of Christ, the children of God. It means, brothers and sisters, God has always known you. Your coming and going, your, your longings and tendencies, your wants and needs, your struggles. He knows when you stumble. He knows when he picks you up. He knows when, you, when you're hurting, when you're fearful. The Savior has always known you. There is never a time in eternity past where God did not know you. Now couple that with the truth that knowing equates to love. It means that God has always loved you, believer. For those in Christ, the children of God, there was never a time in eternity past where God never loved you. He always will, forever. God will never stop loving you because eternally speaking, there was never a time where he started loving you. He's always loved you perfectly, unconditionally. Sin and all, shortcomings and all, 
stumblings and all. Let me show you this in Scripture just to back this up. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We know this great passage, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. We know that, we memorize that, we stand on this great truth. Then listen to this in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, foreknew, what does that mean? Foreknowing and foreknowledge are two different things. They're, They're very similar, but they're two different things. Foreknowledge is having knowledge or information beforehand, right? That's foreknowledge. Foreknowing draws the same sentiment as the idea of knowing that we're talking about in our passages. It's expressing an intimate relationship. Foreknowing. uh, It's expressing love. So what Paul is saying in in this passage is that those whom God foreknew, those whom God foreloved, foreloved in eternity past, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be trans or be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So God foreknew, he, he loved us. Those he, he foreloved, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. And those he Justified, he glorified. That's a glorious chain of the elect. And why it matters that the good shepherd knows us. Because it's in his knowing of us, just as the father knows the son, that assures us he will carry us through to the end. The author and perfecter of our faith. That's the chain, right? The one who foreknew, he, who, the one who loved us in eternity past. Predestined that we would be saved. Then, at some point in our history, he called us to himself. Then he justified us, meaning he, he forgives us of our sin, he declares us righteous in, in, in Christ's righteousness, and then he glorifies us. Or even, and I love how it's even put in the past tense, meaning what God is going to do in the future, in heaven, when we have our glorified bodies where we're free of sin, or free of sorrow, free of sadness and pain, all of that stuff, He's already declared it in the past. He's already glorified. He's already made it in his mind that we will be glorified. We will make it to the end. That's what that passage means. And this is, again, the reason why Jesus is the good shepherd. Because he knows us. He's always known us. Look at verse 16 with me. It says, And I have other sheep that are not for this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Here's the last reason why, uh, or the last reason that Jesus gives us why he is a good shepherd. Because he gathers the sheep. Because he gathers the sheep. It is only in Christ that we Gentiles have the privilege of joining the people of God. The sheepfold. The good shepherd draws his sheep to himself, even when when troubles come, when trials come. Again, this is in contrast of the evil shepherds, the hirelings. It says in verse 12, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. The sheep cannot gather around evil leaders because when wolves and danger comes, 
The evil shepherds run away. It's the evil shepherds that are our first to flee. But with Christ being the good shepherd who sticks around when the wolves come, he gives us, he, he gives us a place to gather, to stand united on, whether a Jew or a Gentile. You don't know what Gentile means. It means that if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile, regardless of what nationality you are. Paul says a similar thing or echoes this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. He says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. The good shepherd gathers all the sheep of God, Jews and Gentiles. You know, maybe a little hot take here, controversial uh, statement here, and especially with the, what's happening in Israel and Palestine and everything, the conflict that's happening in the Middle East. I think Christians need to stop supporting Israel because of this notion that the Jews are God's chosen people. They're not. And please hear me in this, right? I'm not saying don't support Israel. You can have all your opinions and have other reasons as to why you you support them or don't support them. That's fine. But to support Israel on the basis of they're God's chosen people and we as Christians should support them, that's unbiblical and shows a lack of understanding of the biblical narrative. Again, we just read it in Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Paul also says in Romans chapter 2, verse 28, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, but a Jew is one inwardly, circumcised at the heart by the Spirit and not by the letter. He also says in Romans chapter 11 that the Gentiles have been grafted into the people of God, the people of promise. Again, in our passage, Jesus says, verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. What does that all mean? God only has one chosen people, one flock, and there's only one shepherd, Jesus Christ. Therefore, there's only one people of promise. It's those who belong to Christ. Those who have heard the shepherd's call, the voice of the shepherd, and have followed him. Those are the true offspring of Abraham, heirs according to the promise, as we just read. And we as Gentiles have the privilege of having, having been grafted into that great legacy of faith, of faithful followers of God. God's true chosen people, the people of promise, include both Jews and Palestinians, Filipinos and Indians, Canadians, Nigerians, one flock to follow the one shepherd. We are united in the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, the only good shepherd. So, all of that to say, pray for Israel, pray for Palestine, pray that both pagans in both sides of the aisle repent of their sin and follow Jesus Christ. That's the only way peace will come about. But also have hope. 
that the good shepherd will bring together, that he will gather his flock, his true people, his true chosen people together around him. A people that is consisting of all tribes and tongues in the world. And this gathering of the sheep is not just for this life, mind you. Or when times get hard. This gathering of the sheep is also a future hope that we have in Christ. It says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 to 17, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and when with the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Those in Christ will be caught up, gathered. The Latin word for that is raptured. That's where that word comes from. It's just, it's just, this word being caught up is, is, is the same word being used in verse 12 when it talks about how the, the wolves will snatch up the sheep. And the same word being used in verse 27 later in, in John chapter 10 where Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Church, one day when the good shepherd returns, all the sheep will be caught up to him. Never again to be removed from his side, forever to be with him for all eternity. That's the great hope that we have, that we see from that Thessalonians passage. Those, we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. That's a day that's coming. When the good shepherd returns. Just as we close here. To the lost. To those who are listening to this word. And have not put their faith in Jesus Christ. I want to assure you that there is a good shepherd. Who has laid down his life for you who came back to life to assure us that his sacrifice, what he did on the cross, the life that he lived, was enough, was sufficient. Sufficient to get us to the other side. For those who have yet to put their faith in Jesus Christ, I want to assure you that there is a good shepherd who knows you inside and out. Who knows your sin, who knows your failures, who knows your regrets. And despite all of that, still invites you to himself, to know him, to have relationship with him. So if you have yet to do that, listen, there's, as we've been mentioning, all other world religions say you have to do this, you have to do enough good, you have to, you have to die for the faith, for this cause, whatever it is. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the only one that declares God himself has come down and died for us. He lived the life that we could not live. Did the good that we could not do. And dying on the cross paid for our sins, paid for our, our wrongdoings, just so that we could have a relationship with him. And the Bible says all you have to do to have that relationship is put your faith in him. Trust that all of that stuff that I just mentioned was enough. Trust that Jesus is the only and sufficient way to God, to eternal life. 
I invite you, if you haven't yet, to put your faith in Christ this morning to do so today. For, for the found, the found sheep, those who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, trust in your good shepherd. Maybe he's calling you to something difficult. Maybe your season of life right now is that of suffering and hardship. Maybe you're at, you have questions in your life and you don't know what's going on. Trust in the one who laid down his life for you. Trust in the one who has known you since eternity past. You can trust him. You can stand on his promises. He is the good shepherd. The one who leads us by still waters. The one who is with us in the valley of the shadow of death. Trust in the good shepherd of the flock, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we declare that you are good. You are good, O Lord, because even in our sin, in our failures, in in love, you chose to die for us. You chose to die for us worthless sheep who often wander, who often stray. But because you are good, because you are loving, you've, you've still brought us back. All of us here, Lord, at some point was that that one sheep, that one lost sheep, that you went out and pursued and brought back to you. And I pray, God, that we would not forget that, that we would not walk around with an attitude of holier than thou, knowing, Lord, that we are just, just another sheep, O oh God, that you have redeemed. Father, I pray that you'd help us trust you, O God, in our circumstances. That you'd help us in our trials and the hardships of this life to look to our good shepherd who leads us with a rod and a staff. Who corrals us, who pulls us back in whenever we stray. Who picks us up, who causes us to... to, to rest by still waters who never leaves their side. God, we live in a world that is, is so desperate to be known. People looking for attention because they want people to see them for who they are. Yet here is the eternal God who has known us for all of eternity. Lord, I pray, God, that you would help us know you, your love for us, oh God, what you have done for us on the cross. I pray, oh God, again, for the, the, the lost sheep, the unbeliever who's hearing my voice, that God, you would turn their hearts today by, by, by your work, Holy Spirit, that you would regenerate their heart, and today would be a day of salvation. I pray, oh God, for the brother or the sister who has been wandering, 
who have been who has been discouraged, I pray that you would give them new life, that you'd refresh them this morning, oh God, that you would restore them, oh Lord, that the joy of our salvation would come back to us, oh God. So that regardless of what we might face in this life, we would continue to follow the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. We would continue to trust in him who knows us, who cares for us, who loves us completely. Help us be obedient to your call, Lord. Help us be obedient to your voice this morning, O God. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.